Much of my life uh, as a teacher was to help boys at the schools I used to work in uh, to know how to behave, how to conduct themselves in all the arenas of life that they would find themselves in the future, from knowing how to win graciously on a sports field to lose with dignity, from knowing how to sit up at a dinner table to properly speak, make good courteous conversation, to stand and to greet adults as is appropriate when they enter the room and to speak with a deferential clarity. From being allowed to cry when they are incredibly sad or grieving. Yes, boys do need to be taught how to do that. To being able to laugh at themselves when they do something silly. Boys do not need to be taught how to be silly. The job of a teacher is a noble and a very privileged task. But the doctrine that you are essentially permitted to teach as a teacher is just for this life alone. Not so in the church. What is taught here at Christ at Chelsfield, what is taught from here, as in what you have in your hands, the word of God, is for this life, yes, but it is for beyond as well. And that is why Paul writes this whole letter this is his main thing, one of the key verses that everyone really understands is the key verse of, of this whole letter. Look at it, it's there. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing uh, to you with these instructions, all of this, all of this whole letter. So why, verse 15, if I'm a delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. How to conduct ourselves is, if you like, central to this whole letter. It's his concern for this young church and for its struggling uh, leader, Timothy. He's working so hard to lead it and teach it. But Paul is clear throughout, as we should be clear, that our conduct is not there. He's not teaching us so that our conduct will save us. That's not what Paul has been teaching throughout the letter. Remember back in chapter 1, Paul has been straining to explain to his leaders how we um, live our lives will not save us. It is by God's grace that has been poured out abundantly, he says in verse 14, through Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can be saved. How the church, how the leaders, how Timothy, how we respond to Jesus Christ's gracious saving work is what this letter is all about. How we conduct ourselves in, res in response to Christ's work. The term that Paul uses to describe that conduct again in this passage is godliness. It's used here in this passage more in a more concentrated way than anywhere else in the New Testament. But essentially, what does that godliness look like? What does that good conduct in response to Jesus Christ's work look like? What are the factors that will encourage that good conduct? Well, that's what Paul spells out in this section, this last few verses of chapter 3. Just three verses. Look at it. It's on our first point. And we're going to look at true godliness. What, what's, how is that kind of uh, encouraged? Three things we're going to look at. Paul's concern is that we must understand what proper church is, what proper conduct looks like, and what our proper confession... I'm sorry, it's three C's, but I had to kind of like cram that last one in there. It's essentially you know, what we believe. How we understand, you see, the interrelatedness between those three things will help us understand each of those three things more clearly. Paul sees each as important, but if we are to respond to Christ's saving work on the cross appropriately, then we must first understand, as we see now, 
who we are. We've got to understand what proper church really is. And Paul gets very excited here, as we should, and as Richard brilliantly did as he read it, uh, because he uses three titles to describe the church. Have a look at them. We're God's household. We're the church of the living God, and we're the pillar and foundation of truth. Let's run through those very quickly. Firstly, we're God's household, and it's a term that Paul uses again and again. In this chapter alone, he's used it twice, verse 5 and verse 12. We are a family as a church. If you are a true member of the church, that is, you have trusted Jesus Christ with your life and death through faith, then you sit right now among a family. These are brothers and sisters around you in Christ. More mind-blowing than that is that this family you are sat with right now are your eternal family. This family will never divide. This family will never end. This family will never kind of have a little riff at some family event and then sort of go, oh, let's part our ways and never talk to each other again. This family will be with each other for eternity. And even then, we won't get on each other's nerves. We might do a little bit now, but then we'll be okay. The church of God is, the church is God's household. Uh, secondly, the church is the church of the living God. It's a term used loads in the Old Testament uh, to distinguish, essentially, God's people against the, the dead idols of false religion. Now, of course, it points us to, doesn't it, the nature of God. He's immortal. He's eternal. So we, together, as the family of God, we identify ourselves collectively as the church of, of the, the only living God, essentially, is the point made there. But we also are temples of the living God, we find out from 2 Corinthians, don't we, as well? So we gather each week to, to listen to the word of God, talk, to sing the word of God, to pray together. Now, we could all be thinking, well, we could do that easily at home. We could go on the computer, we could watch a sermon, we could listen to some songs, play them in our ears and all that kind of stuff. And it says, that's really good. That's absolutely fine. But coming together encourages one another and we come encouraged as well because we see others doing it. It intensifies the experience of our learning and of our singing and our praying. We gather as the church of the living God. And the reality will be that there will be some people here who are struggling right now in their faith simply because, well, one reason will be because you do not meet with the church of the living God regularly enough. In a very London way, we fill up our diaries. We consider other things more important. I wonder if that's you. We are the church of the living God. As the writer of the Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together. Lastly, we're the pillar and foundation of truth. Now, we know a building is only as good as its foundations. Don't look at the foundations as this building. It's slightly scary. Uh, but, you know, we know what that means. We know what the image, the metaphor points us to. Likewise, with pillars, they, they kind of give the building its form, its structure. Also, probably its beauty. Again, not a great example around us right here. But you get the image. You understand the picture. As the church, faithful to God, we recognise all truth comes from him. But as his church... We are the foundation and pillar of the truth in this world. Which is an awesome but slightly frightening responsibility, isn't it? We have the role of upholding and making the truth of the living God known to those people around us. 
Now, I don't need to spell this out, but given that God has fully and finally revealed himself through his word, the Bible, do you see why the Bible is so central to our ministry here? Paul's concern is that his readers have a proper understanding of the church. We are family, congregation of the living God, as multiple temples of the living God. We're to be the pillar and foundation. The bricks and the mortar of our lives ought to be the truth of God's word. If we are to know how to conduct ourselves properly in response to all that Christ has done, the church must have a, a, a good understanding of who it is to begin with. But Paul's concern, his main concern, is for their conduct. We need to know what proper conduct looks like. That was the instruction in verse 14 and 15 and 16. It's described there as true godliness. Now what that is, is spelt out further in the last section of our passage today. So we'll kind of push it forward to there. But let's lastly see what proper confession looks like. See, what we believe, what we confess as truth in our lives will inform, but it will also transform our conduct. Do you see how the three work together? We see at the end of verse 15 that the church is to be the foundation of truth. And in saying that, look what Paul does. He speaks of the truth and then he breaks forth into song about the truth. And that's what we see at the end of verse 16. Those last six lines are probably a song. A little portion of an early church hymn. Essentially, it's, a, it's like a little creed. Like we might say, this is what we declare to be, to be true about God, from God's word. Now he introduces those six lines of a song, uh, of the hymn at the beginning of verse 16. Look at those words there. Beyond all question, he says, the mystery from which true godliness springs, see the interrelatedness there, is great. That is, he's saying, this conduct or true godliness comes about, as he says, through the mystery of Christ. That is, the mystery meaning what was hidden in the past is now revealed in Christ. And then he breaks forth into song, essentially, with these six lines of a hymn, divided into three little contrasting pairs. And he spells out what it is to have what we truly believe as Christians. This is our proper confession, if you like, that will bring about good conduct. Look at the, let's look at those three little couplets if we can. Firstly, uh, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit. Notice the first describes how Christ was revealed at his birth. The second shows how he's revealed as the Messiah at his resurrection. See, our confession of Christ is to, to know those kind of two bookends of revelation. The incarnation and the resurrection. Jesus Christ is fully human and yet he is the divine Messiah King. Secondly, we are seen by the angels, was preached among the nations. Again, massive contrasts here. One is heavenly, one is earthly, one is supernatural, one is human. All bearing witness. Witness is the kind of key to these, this little couplet here. Witness to the fact that Christ is incarnate, the eternal king, the one who was proclaimed to the nations. The last little couplet, look at that, was believed on in the world and was taken up in glory. Again, note the contrast. The reception here of Christ is the important thing. They're in two separate arenas, both in eternity, but also in the finite world that we know now. So, I know we've gone through it quickly. Let me summarise. We are the church, eternally related, the assembly of the living God. 
with the duty and the joy to be together as the pillar and the foundation of truth. The truth that has been revealed and sung about by Paul in those six lines. The truth of Christ. And in knowing this, how we conduct ourselves and what we believe and confess should be absolutely everything to us. What Paul is saying here is this, who we are, what we do, and what we believe are so tightly linked. We need to know what proper church looks like, who we are. We need to know what proper conduct will look like. He'll spell that out in a minute, but he's showing the interrelatedness here. And he, he spells out what is our, should be our proper confession of who Christ is in our lives. True godliness that brings God's glory is found in these things. But the opposite is true. And that was the great concern for Paul in the church in Ephesus. And we come now to the second point. Uh, that is of true ungodliness. That is what the issue was. I don't know if you've ever noticed, have you? It is very tragic and often very subtle. Seemingly benign influences in our lives, imperceptible changes, move us from trusting God in an area of life to not trusting Him. Have you ever experienced that? The same is true in Ephesus. In Ephesus, the elders probably met to pray. I guess they would have seemed so vibrant, so faithful, so, so godly, so alive. But they simply, simply just hadn't spotted their shift, but Paul had. The elders that Paul references back in, in chapter 1 had turned to what we call a religious asceticism. Now don't worry about that word. That's simply the kind of thinking that says, Christ's work is, is okay, but it's not fully sufficient. So I'm going to adopt that kind of thinking and that conduct that in addition to Christ, for my salvation, I'm going to deny myself some good God-given things. Now let's be clear, Paul isn't opposed to discipline in our lives, or even denying ourselves, as we'll see in verse 7 and 8 later. Our spiritual diet, our spiritual exercise is really, really important to him. But asceticism, as it is known, that is the intentional denying of things that God has declared to be good, well, that is considered by Paul as an incredibly dangerous teaching and a dangerous conduct. So he says, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, he says. You see, Paul is in no doubt of the ultimate origin of this kind of teaching within the church that was leading to such ungodliness within the church. Things taught by demons is a scathing critique, isn't it? But is Paul being too harsh here? Surely, go, you know, not, not kind of doing something, going without, that's, that's kind of a harmless thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, you know, give up chocolate for some time and so on, that, that, that's kind of harmless. Isn't self-denial kind of a wise thing to do at times? Again, sensible discipline is not the issue here. Saying no to Krispy Kreme donuts, for example, after having a whole box already, is not Paul's issue that he is addressing here. It is the contrived holiness of asceticism that Paul is going against here. He says it's from the devil. He couldn't get it much stronger, could he? 
You see, God is not properly worshipped by the denial of good gifts. If the ultimate origin uh, of this ungodly, dangerous teaching is the devil, verse 2 is pretty clear, isn't it, of chapter 4. It's also rooted in humanity. Look how he speaks of the teachers. He says, it's blatant, it's intentional hypocrisy uh, from these ungodly teachers. They have no feelings of guilt, he says, no remorse, they're seared consciences. I think this should be a real warning to us. You know, if you ever meet people, and you may do in time, I'm not sure. If you ever meet teachers, Bible teachers, who say, oh, you know, I understand that you trust Christ, but, you know, if you were to just go without this, you'd just be a little bit better, you know what I mean? It would help a bit. Go take you to a higher spiritual realm. Those people may seem so humble. It may appear so intelligent and godly. And yet look what God, not what I, look what God thinks of them. The Bible says they are liars and worse. And Paul focuses, as the focus was in the church probably, of two things, two God-given things, good things that, that they were kind of denying themselves of, that is of sex and of food, marriage and food as well. Marriage in that context was under attack in so many sides, whether it's the, uh, the Jewish communities, of, for example, the Essenes we know in history, um, or certainly the Greek Empire. They were saying things like this, that any kind of pleasure was evil. They were rejecting marriage and denying any physical pleasure within any context. And don't be surprised by this. This kind of teaching has been in the church throughout all history. It was the dominant thinking of the Catholic Church through the Middle Ages. Sex was considered an evil for so many hundreds of years. I love this quote. Tertullian is an early church father. He wrote this. Got to hear this. Extermination of the human race was to be preferred to the sexual relationship within marriage. That sounds like the Borg, doesn't it? Sorry, it's a Star Wars joke, but never mind. Um, Let's move on. By the time of the Reformation, though, in the 16th century... The Roman Catholic Church had added so many church days where sex was not permitted in the marriage relationship that, get this, that over half the year was excluded up to the point of the Reformation. And one commentator actually said, there's no wonder there was a Reformation. Uh, It's quite clear. But through the Reformation, which is essentially a return to God's word, the Bible, it's interestingly, particularly through the writings of the Puritans, yes, actually the Puritans, their understanding of sex, valued within marriage, was seen throughout their writing as it was awash with the delights and exaltations of pleasure and joy of sex within marriage. And Paul is simply saying here, forbidding people to enjoy a good gift from God is utter madness and it is ungodly. And you have to ask, don't you, why would anyone find this kind of teaching attractive? There are loads of reasons. I'm going to go through just one, I think, because it's probably the primary one. I think it's probably because it's easier to exercise selective self-righteousness than to trust Christ's righteousness alone. So, for example, you may struggle towards godliness in one area of your life, yeah? We all do. Perhaps you struggle to abstain from being selfish, You struggle to abstain from being greedy or or, or being a gossip. So what you do is you select something that you can abstain from. Food. Sex. 
And the thinking, often kind of subliminally, just in your head, you might not even realise you're doing it. In abstaining, you are making up for ungodliness in other areas. If you come across teaching like this, though, that leads people to the ungodly denial of good things from God, understand clearly here, the Christian life is not to be led in the negative. It's to be enjoyed in the positive Knowing Christ's full, sufficient righteousness given to us by his death on the cross. We must receive from God with thanksgiving that which, as he says here, is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So we've seen the concerns of Paul to bring about true godliness in the church. We've seen the example, as we've seen here in these early verses of chapter 4, the example of the teaching that was leading people away from Christ into ungodly thinking and also ungodly conduct. Do you see the contrast of the two? And Paul now turns very much to the necessity of training ourselves in godliness. That is... Recognize that this isn't something passive. This is very active. Third point, train yourself in godliness. Verses 6 to 10 here. Must understand, and I think if you've come from a very churchy background, you know what I mean by that, that training ourselves in godliness is not kind of just a religious posture. This is what we kind of do. This is the way we always do. No. Doing the right stuff so that people might see is not what Paul is describing here. We are too, in response to all that God has done, being utterly smitten by his love and his sacrifice in his son. We're to live lives in active obedience to God. Godliness. But we must have this proper spiritual diet. And we must get the proper spiritual exercise. We need to be properly nourished as Paul encourages Timothy. Do you see that in verse 6? Nourishment, so important. Now he warns Timothy from the Big Mac meal, doesn't he? Look at verse 7. That's the Big Mac meal as far as he's concerned. It's terrible for him. Don't go there. The godless myths. The old wives' tales. Don't go there. It's very popular at the time. Paul wants Timothy to get the right spiritual food. Bad diet? He'll be a poor minister of the gospel. A good diet? He'll be able to minister the gospel to those around him. But what is the good food we all need? See, Paul is clear to to Timothy and to anyone. If we're to be effective ministers of the gospel, uh, we must persevere as students of God's word. That is, they've been nourished. Look at it, the word is there. The truths of the faith that we find in God's word. These guys, Paul is saying, keep coming back to the word of God. We must not neglect our spiritual diet. I mean, when did you last just spend good time getting up early or, or turning off the TV and, and just nourishing yourself, enjoying the richness of the diet of God's word? The question is, what are you feeding on? We need to be nourished in the truth. We not only need to watch our diets, but also our exercise regimes. As Paul says in verse 7, he says, train yourself to be godly. Exercise so that you can discern the false teaching that we've seen in those early verses, 1 to 6 in chapter 4. So you're prepared to fight against the temptation around us in the world. I remember at university, um, 
having to do various uh, fitness assessments. And uh, has anyone done the bleep test? Who's done the bleep? Remember the bleep test? I went to the university that actually created the bleep test, so you can blame us. Uh, we loved the bleep test, and every term we used to do it together. It's a kind of shuttle run, and it gets quicker and quicker and quicker until you fall over and die. And that's the point uh, you get your score. But we would run in teams, so it would get all very competitive. Massive, massive um, sports hall, and uh, you know, be the hockey team up. We get there, all looking around, yeah, look, I'm going to beat you, I'm going to beat you. There's all this kind of trash talk going on, and there you start, and then off you go. Where I was, we had Paula Ratcliffe, she's in my year, looking down on us, various other Olympians watching us going, oh my goodness. And it was so competitive. Buckets were put at end of every end of the shuttle run. But the expectation was that if you, if you didn't vomit, you hadn't pushed yourself hard enough. We trained for hours and days and months to get up the leaderboard. It was ridiculous. We tried to beat Seb Coe, who was the world record holder at the time. Someone did, actually, when I was at university. Did you know, here's some funny things. If you were to run 100 metres under 10 seconds, do you know how many hours you need to train to do that? They say it's 10,000 hours. How many of you are learning a language at the moment? You know, do you, do you suddenly just go, oh, <clears throat> I've got it. You know, Spanish, boom, ah, no problem. Si, whatever, I don't know, clue. <laughs> No, you have to spend hours, don't you, going through the declensions of your verbs and, and all the vocab, and you've got to get it all into this. No. I wonder in matters spiritual. Do you think you suddenly and miraculously, boom, zaps there? Godly. You need to be disciplined. Training to be more godly. This isn't legalism, by the way. That kind of self-centered action for merit before God. No, a disciplined heart says something like this. I love you, God. And I want to please you. And I want to discipline myself for your pleasure. Not mine. Train yourself to be godly, which simply is to train yourself in the discipline of the scriptures to be godly. The good teaching and the truth of the faith should be our diet. What is Paul encouraging is, uh, what Paul is encouraging is a diet of scriptures and an exercise in the scriptures. And this is a call to all of us, however busy, whatever our lifestyle is, get your head in the Bible. If you're a Christian, get the right food. Train yourselves in it. Whatever your, your ability exercise yourself build muscle essentially saying here get ripped in the bible now we can't all be charles spurgeon spurgeon was uh, noted for the man he was a 18th century preacher but he was a, he was a speed reader he could read the bible he, they reckoned in a day and he could recall uh, paragraphs just verbatim like bang out there's never been anyone like him i'm not you're not like him. no one you're not going to be that but that's no excuse. Ability is no excuse. Get a good diet in the word and train yourself to be godly, listening to the word and applying the word. And look at the rewards. See them down here. Look at verse 8 uh, and 9. 
I remember we had this competition at university. We were quite competitive at university, by the way. It was fun. And I was just recalling that this week. We had this competition laid upon us, uh, a few of my mates. We had to try and get good stomach muscles. I won't go into the details of it. But basically loads of us for about a, a month watched our diets like just it was so meticulously. And then we did like everywhere we did, we just like hundreds, thousands of thousands of sit-ups. And it was fun. And the results were great. Until I started eating donuts again. It just lasted a moment. That's the point. But look at verse 8 and 9. Godliness has value for all things, he says. But the point is it's present and eternal. It will last. Oh, physical exercise, yeah, some value, that's great. Eat well, exercise, all of those things are good. But you're not going to take those muscles to heaven. True godliness, you see, has a purpose now. It will make you a better family member. It will make you a better worker. It will make you a better lover, a better everything. Because godliness passes from one age to the next. The rewards are now and always. I haven't got time, but verse 9 and 10, essentially it says, trust it, live it. Let's go on though to finish. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Verse 11 says, command and teach these things. That is, he's saying, fight against the, the kind of the teaching that you're hearing, adding to the sufficient truth of the gospel. We must teach how true godliness comes through the diet of, uh, of the word and exercising in the word. But Paul finishes this section as he urges Timothy. And his tone here isn't kind of dictatorial, it's fatherly. Do you notice his love and his care for, his, for Timothy? And in verse 12, he, he essentially outlines the expectations of what good conduct, what, what true godliness looks like. Fivefold godliness. Let's go through those things quickly. Timothy is to set an example. What first in speech is not interesting? Firstly, speech. Think about when your authority is challenged at work, amongst friends. What's your natural inclination with your mouth? Put them down, undermine them, stamp it out. Maybe you just become the typical passive-aggressive and back off and then gossip about them. No, Timothy in his speech is to respond with godliness. And it's interesting, isn't it? Speech is first. We're able people generally here. We talk too much. We don't listen enough. Some of us have problems with telling the truth. Some of us might have problems with rude language, gossip. So often in a church that is couched with prayerful concern, isn't it? Timothy is to set an example in speech. Godliness starts there. Also, he says in conduct, secondly. I remember once playing a, a, a squash game. So all my illustrations are sport today. That's okay then. I'm all right with that. I played this game of squash with a, a church um, minister. He was a cheat. And he was really angry because he didn't get a point off me. It was horrible. His conduct was shocking. We've got to be careful, haven't we? To set an example in speech, conduct. Thirdly, love. You know, even I speak to ministers because that's the primary application here from Paul to Timothy. But we all need to listen in because it's an appropriate. Uh, that we hear what godly conduct looks like. 
Oh, you know, you can have a minister who can be a great preacher, but they can be tyrannical with their staff and just a bully. To be an example in love. Fourthly, an example in faith. Someone who applies God's word to all areas of their life. Humbly and prayerfully. <clears throat> and lastly, an example in purity. Well, as I told you at the weekend, um, at the beginning, I spent my whole weekend dealing with dreadful impurity in marriages and individuals. It is so messy. The costs are so huge. And it dishonours God. It is utterly awful. How does Timothy remain a good example? Verse 13. First and foremost, he is to encourage the church to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture. Do you see why it's so central? Everything. Come back to God's Word. Let's read it. Let's teach it. Notice the apostolic norm here was to read a bit and then preach a bit from that passage. I call it just bread and butter. You read a bit, explain a bit. It might seem a little bit dull. It's simple, but it's the apostolic way. Verse 14, we need to work hard at this. Verse 15, we need to be diligent and transparently so. And 16, we finish with that verse which should be etched in our minds in a hostile and challenging world. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Your life has been spelt out with that five-fold godliness which Paul has instructed Timothy to be an example in. Your doctrine, verse 13, is the Scriptures. And the point he's saying here is that balance is needed. Because in reality they are both completely interlinked. What you believe about God, your doctrine will determine how you live for him. And likewise, life has everything to do with doctrine because you have to then live it out. I've said enough. So I'm going to pray and we're going to close. Let's pray. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Heavenly Father, we humbly hear the warning. We see the measure of it. And the cost if we ignore it. So please help us to watch our life and doctrine closely, I pray. Amen.